So tonight we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Um, we'll be in chapter 4 starting at verse 13. As we begin to unpack these verses, I need you to keep a mindset as we go through this. Being observant of the work of the Holy Spirit within the apostles. The Holy Spirit's indwelling of Peter and John is obvious in their bold speaking, their bold teaching, their bold preaching. The confidence to stand before a powerful and mighty supreme court, if you will, called the Sanhedrin is, is just awesome. Two fishermen, right? Their steadfastness in proclaiming the gospel of Christ even while under persecution, even while under suffering, even while under the stress, the trial of being in front of 71 of the mightiest men in Jerusalem. The setting is a face-off between these two men, between Peter and John, and this Supreme Court, if you will, called the Sanhedrin. The apostles have prevented their defense in answering the question asked by the Sanhedrin, by what name, by what power have you done this? The miracle of the lame man being healed. The response is interesting. It's full of nothing. It's full of nothing but the truth of what Jesus had taught them. It's full of nothing but what the Old, scripture, the Old Testament scriptures say about Christ. And the truth of how the miracle was performed in their response. That it was done not by us, but by the power of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that this happened. Denial of Christ is not an option for the apostles. Peter is known for being the denier. Over and over again as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that denying Christ again is not an option. We're not going to see that happen. I think we all know that Peter even goes to his death and he's told something along the line, we're going to crucify you just like we did your Lord. And he says, no, I'm not worthy of that. Turn me upside down. Faithful. Peter and John are heralds of Christ. They're messengers. They're fulfilling the great commission. And they're certainly embracing God's sovereign will as they stand before the Sanhedrin. Whatever will come, whatever God ordains is right, is what we just sung. That is, that is their life. That is what they're doing. Even in time of trial, they're going to take that opportunity to share the gospel. So you have to step back away from this and you think, what are the odds of two uneducated, two ordinary men going toe-to-toe -to -toe in a judicial debate with the legal powers of the day, the Jewish, the mighty Jewish high court, and not be punished for even disturbing the final hour of prayer. What's the odds of that? What, what are the odds that they could walk away unscathed, having proclaimed a miracle in the name of a known, tried, executed blasphemer? That's the way the Sanhedrin viewed Christ. What are the odds they're going to walk away from this unpunished? What are the odds that these two men 
continuing their ministry of Christ and him crucified after this day in court. It seems as though they're in a hopeless state and a mere mortal man would have to at some point surrender in all that. But we don't find that here with Peter and John. They do have a few things going for you that I failed to mention. There's this healed man standing with them before the Sanhedrin. That all of Jerusalem has seen him sitting outside this gate called Beautiful, begging for donations for alms. And he was lame since birth. And he is standing, and I think Luke uses that word standing as we'll read, as we've read, intentionally. Because that's the amazement. He's standing there with them. He's never stood in his life, but here he is standing with these two men. It's an obvious miracle has occurred right here in front of this council. It stands. The population of Jerusalem is completely aware by now of what has happened, that this miracle has occurred. We know that 5,000 have repented and believed. We know that that number is actually higher than that. We're just not told how many women, how many young adults or children may have been in that number. They've witnessed this formerly lame beggar walking and leaping and praising God inside a temple that he's likely never been in. The miracle is there. The population knows it. And probably the most important thing that I haven't talked about is we've got two God-fearing, Holy Spirit-filled men standing before the Sanhedrin. The odds may be stacked against them in a lot of ways, but they're not defenseless, are they? As long as we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're not without defense. You have to ask yourself how much more is needed. Anything more? And all I can say to that is let's find out. If you will, let's stand for the reading of the words of the living God. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. And I will read through verse 22. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling. And began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But lest it spread Any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further... They let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom 
this sign of healing had occurred. Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for your presence within us, your believers, your children. And we ask, Lord, that you open our ears to hear your word, that you clear our minds so that we can absorb it and we can understand it. And Father, I ask that you move me out of your way and that you have your way here this evening and that your words will be spoken. Father, I thank you for everyone in attendance here today and ask that you bless them mightily. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's children said, amen. You can be seated. So verse 13 read, now as they were observed, <clears throat> as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. <clears throat> You'll have to excuse me for my cough. I had some kind of virus after we came back from San Antonio and I can't get rid of this nagging, nagging cough, so I apologize. <clears throat> There's been an observable confidence in Peter and John. We've talked about bold preaching and teaching a number of times. We see the non-hesitant ability to speak about what they believe. We, we, we recognize a willingness to hold nothing back. They hold nothing back. They created, it created a level of shock in the council members of the Sanhedrin. And surely the Sanhedrin had expected some form of denial, some form of misunderstanding could be talked about. Well, well, you know, we didn't really mean what you heard it to say. We misspoke would be words we would hear today. I'm sure they expected something like that. But these two followers of Jesus, that's not what they got. And we must fully understand the apostles were not confident in themselves. Did they have a vast amount of hidden knowledge that we're not told about? Well, they did walk with Jesus Christ for three years plus on this earth. We're going to hear later how that everything they saw and heard, we're going to talk through that, think about what they saw and heard as we get there. They're labeled as uneducated, and, and they did walk with Jesus, but this, this three years isn't what they leaned on. The last time we were together, we talked about Luke chapter 12, and their leaning was upon the Holy Spirit to provide them with the words to say. They did not claim to have power to work miracles, gifts of healing, such as what is we have in front of the Sanhedrin here. This formerly lame beggar healed. In verses 12 and 13, they clearly denied possessing any kind of power in and of themselves. This power came from the name of Christ. And they had no political sway with anyone on this council. They didn't have political sway with the Romans who were controlling the government at that time. They simply had confidence in God. They simply had confidence in Jesus Christ. They simply had confidence in an indwelling Holy Spirit. And that whatever was going to happen was going to be okay because they were going to stay in God's will. The apostles' confidence was not in themselves. It was in God. The verse does not describe the status of Peter and John before the, stand, before the Sanhedrin. It does describe them as being uneducated and ordinary. 
But when we think about them being uneducated, that does not mean they were illiterate. That does not mean they were incapable of learning. It simply means they had not officially been taught by the authorized teachers of the Jewish nation, if you will. When it talks about being ordinary, they're referred to ordinary as they're just another layperson in a crowd of worshipers coming into the temple on any given day. They're not looked upon as being lower, but they're certainly not looked upon as being any higher than. So they're ordinary, they're considered uneducated, and they just haven't been officially trained. Well, they, they said the same thing about Christ, right? In John chapter 7, verse 14, we read, <clears throat> and excuse me again, but when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And here's that word again. The Jews then were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned? He hasn't been educated. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. These are the same words that uh, Peter and John are facing in the opinions of the Sanhedrin. Their three-plus-year degree in the seminary of walking with Jesus Christ is all the education they will ever need. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the only power that they will ever need. Their faith in a risen Savior is all that they will ever need. Their recognition of a sovereign God is all that they will ever need. Luke describes the reaction of the Sanhedrin to the speaking of the apostles as being amazed. The word used were marveling. And one could easily say that the Sanhedrin was perplexed to the point of speechlessness. Not only did they not know what to say, they couldn't say anything. And this was brought about by the bold teaching, the bold preaching, the truth of presenting the gospel. This is not what they had expected, and they didn't have a reply. The verse closes with an acknowledgement that the Sanhedrin began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Now, to state having been with Jesus is a a very similar way to saying that they were disciples of Jesus. Having been with Jesus would mean that Jesus was their teacher in, in many of the understandings of different commentators. And this is becoming obvious now to the Sanhedrin. Peter and John are doing the same things Jesus did, right? They're teaching in the temple where they're not supposed to be you got these miracles that are happening. Certainly they'd heard about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We don't know what that wind was, but there's something happened to those people that was in it. They must be beginning to wonder if their association with Jesus could be the origin of the miracle. And we have to remember that the Sanhedrin are a group of people who taught sternly against anything supernatural even to the point of not believing in angels and demons, let alone healing. But they had to be thinking, I can't deny the miracle, and this thing has happened. How could it happen? And they said they did it in the name of... Could it be? It had to be in there somewhere. 
Most certainly the Sanhedrin would remember many of the miracles that Jesus performed during his life. And I'll talk more in a little while, but what about all the times they asked him for a sign after he had worked many signs? But the Sanhedrin missed a very important thing here. The words that they use is having been with Jesus. It's past tense. They didn't recognize that Peter and John were still with Jesus. They didn't recognize that Jesus was still with them. There's no reason to use the past tense here. The truth was and still is that Christ was in these men. Christ was speaking through these men. And the similarity that they're detecting here isn't some lingering effect from being in contact with a now dead Christ. The similarity they're seeing is created by the presence of a living Christ, the Holy Spirit within them. But the perplexity of this situation, even from a past tense view, is too much for the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> In verse 14, it says, and, say, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. This miracle of the formerly lame beggar standing before them, and how can they deny this? They can't. As much as they may want, the evidence is damning if they deny the miracle. There's no way that they can deny this miracle, this thing that has happened to this man. They cannot deny it. And when man is placed in an impossible situation, the most common reaction you'll see is speechlessness. <coughs> I'm, I'm going to repeat a verse here, but this very much explains the fulfillment of Luke 21, 14 and 15. And we read about this the last time I was together, and I thought about not putting it in here, but I think it applies so well. It says, so set in your hearts not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, listen, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. This is where the Sanhedrin is. They can't resist this. They're going to try. The impossible scenario they're faced with leaves them with one of three options. Option number one, deny the miracle has ever happened. And as I considered what that would look like, I could almost hear my mother saying, that is enough of your foolishness. Wouldn't that? I mean, that's where they would put themselves if they tried to deny the miracle. With the number of witnesses that exist, they could not very well explain this away. So the option two they had is deny their lifelong teaching against anything supernatural. And this would have probably been a right response, but they can't do that. This would have required them to show some level of humility. This would have caused them to have to say, I was wrong. Isn't it amazing how hard it is for some people to say I was wrong? People in leadership positions that make a mistake and just double down rather than saying I was wrong. And they lose respect of the people. One of the things that I've learned in being a leader of people, the thing that you can do to earn respect of people the fastest and the easiest is if you make a mistake, you stand before them and say, 
I told you something yesterday. I was completely wrong. It was a mistake. Let me set the record straight. Here's what you need to know. That's all my fault. I misunderstood. Whatever. Admit you were wrong. Humility is not something the proud Sanhedrin participants are willing to consider. Admission of being wrong is not something they're going to accept. So in my opinion, it only leaves them with option number three, which is to say nothing and basically we're going to do nothing. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who's credited with saying remaining silent and being, <clears throat> excuse me, being thought a fool is better than opening your mouth and removing all doubt. And I think this is where they found themselves, just to say nothing at all. It is the apostles' contention that the beggar's healing was the work of God, <clears throat> excuse me, of the God of their fathers through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13. This beggar being regularly outside the temple made him well known. We've talked about this. And now he's standing here before the Sanhedrin. The Supreme Court cannot deny a miracle that they have taught against to all the people in Jerusalem. What can be said at this point? Absolutely nothing. Their teaching against the supernatural has fallen flat on its face right in their very own courtroom, a place where the truth should readily be accepted, heralded, foretold. The truth is going to be ignored. And there's nothing they can say in response to this man's healed condition. The Holy Spirit has given the apostles a reply to the Sanhedrin in which there is no answer, there is no power on their end, there's nothing to do. We can and will face similar scenarios today if and when we speak to people who may have beliefs in other religions, for instance. They may have been a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness. You choose. They may have been in that faith for 20 years. To have them let go of their presuppositions in and of themselves to open their mind and be willing to listen to the gospel isn't going to happen. That's why we embrace a doctrine called regeneration so firmly. We can show you in Corinthians that the, this word, this teaching, this belief, this Christianity, it's a total mystery to those who don't believe. They just can't get it. They don't understand. They don't have clearance. They don't have clarity their long-held traditions dominate their mind and to admit that all their time spent believing whatever it is they believe was a waste of time requires something the natural man does not possess and that's humility the pride of life and man's sinful nature will control him <clears throat> and quite honestly we found it totally too easy to say no to things that we just don't like just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. Our presuppositions dominate our thought process. And this is where the Sanhedrin has found itself. This is where many people in the world are. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out into left field here for a minute. And I promise to come back in out of the weeds. But we've got some level of this going on amongst believers. 
brothers and sisters in Christ. Doctrine. Doctrine in and of itself. The doctrine of election. The very people who will claim that, oh no, there's no doctrine of election. Those very people, I want you to think about this. They have no problem whatsoever accepting a doctrine of election when it's applied to Moses, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Jonah, the rest of the minor prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the very disciples themselves. Who picked them? Well, God did. You said you didn't believe in election. We have this same thing going on. A presupposition where brother so-and-so stood behind a pulpit and he said, it's got to be true. Do me a favor. Anything I ever say up here, you get your manual out and you make sure I'm not steering you wrong. It's not because I, I have a problem with what I'm teaching. It's your responsibility to hold me accountable. It's your responsibility if you don't understand to ask questions. This is all we got, people. We either believe it or we don't. I'm going to go one a little bit further here, and I promised I would come back. <clears throat> so we start bringing this up, and you say, well, you, don't re you really do believe in the dog? No, no, no. That's not fair, right? God wouldn't do that. Choose some and not choose others. That's not fair. That's not who God is. And then you hear this sudden, what about free will? And it really hit me this week that if there's a doctrine of election out there and people don't embrace it, they embrace free will. There's a doctrine of free will out there, right? That's what they're believing. Where's that in the Bible? So I started digging. That's what I do. I dig. Ended up using my King James Version concordance because most of these people are King James only people. So I didn't want to disrespect them and miss something because I didn't use the right version, right? So I got that concordance out and I looked up the word elect. Not elected, not election, the word elect. It's used 17 times in the Bible, 17 times. 17 out of 17 times it's talked about. It talks about being saved, being chosen for salvation, salvation, the application thereof. It's salvation oriented 17 out of 17 times. Here's the amazing part. I looked up the word free will. It's used 17 times. The same number of times as elect is. 15 out of 17 times, it's talking about free will offerings in the ceremonial law that Christ has fulfilled and we don't even observe anymore. One time it's talking about a free will offering as though in prayer in the Psalms. And the last time it's talking about a free will choice that a person traveling on a path has to make choices. Am I going to go right or am I going to go left? None of them have anything to do with salvation outside of the possibility of the free will offering standing for some level of forgiveness. Nothing. I'm sorry, I have to share what I learned. Bear with me. <clears throat> 
I digress. Let's return to realizing that we're going to face battles against traditionalism and presuppositions. People who've already made up their mind, they won't be convinced. And let's remember saying I'm wrong. I was wrong about something is hard to do. I suppose the only thing the Sanhedrin can do at this point is get Peter and John out of here and this healed beggar, get them out of our presence. And let's devise us a plan concerning how to deal with this scenario. <clears throat> Verse 15 and through 17 reads, But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But lest it spread further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. The customary practice of the Sanhedrin was for the accused to be excused, and then they would deliberate upon the evidence that was shown and they would make a ruling of guilty or innocent, or they would do a sentencing, whatever was required there. Doing this was not abnormal. I played that up a little. But at the same time, I'm sure they were glad to get them out of there. And let's get our heads together and figure out how to deal with these guys. Besides, you know, like any other crook, a crook group of crooked judges, they had to get their story straight, right? They're facing a Pandora's box here. You can't open it without getting it all over you. They feel as though there's no winning in this ordeal. Their desire to stop the teaching of Jesus Christ being resurrected and miracles being, formed in, being performed in his name is paramount. This has to be stopped. If they have a true and legitimate miracle that's occurred, their personal belief is that only the one true God could work such a miracle as this. That's what they, they would believe. If we're going to have to teach in a miracle, it's got to be God that does it, right? Keeping the miracle secret was not an option because all of Jerusalem had heard about it by now. Many of them had seen it. <clears throat> the fact that Peter and John had broken no laws just further complicates this matter. And while they cannot deny the miracle, there is one thing that they can deny and they do deny. They can deny that this miracle occurring in Jesus' name. They can deny Christ. They do deny the miracle occurred in the power of Jesus Christ. And this just further affirms their heart, hard-hearted heart state of being. talked to you earlier about signs and, and Jesus people can't get enough of signs but they don't want to believe the ones that they see because even after all the miracles that Christ performed they continued to press for more signs Matthew 12 38 then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him Jesus teacher we want to see a sign from you but he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And a very, very similar scenario happens again in Matthew 16 after this. How many miracles had he worked in between there that they had been witness to and they had heard about and they knew about? 
How many blind people had been healed? But yet they wanted to see more. And the fact that the Sanhedrin could not deny the sign implies clearly that they would have denied it if they could have. And while they will not deny the miracle, they will deny Christ. Like so many before them, the Savior is a stumbling block to the members of the Sanhedrin. As even unbelievers today handle things. The wicked hearts have fallen. They're in a fallen state. They search for ways to find and create conspiracies to stop the truth from going forward. John chapter 3 talks about the light and the darkness. A lot of us read up to John 3.16 and we think, man, we've got to the best one in the Bible and we kind of stop there. If you go on to 19, it says, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, and their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. It's very much what's going on here with the Sanhedrin. Can't handle the truth. Don't want to give credit to Christ. Opposition to Christ is always opposition to an actual good being done. Opposition to this miracle of a lame man being healed. <clears throat> opposition, to, opposition to Christ always occurs in spite of conclusive evidence. Luke records the Sanhedrin's use of the word it in verse 17. <clears throat> this just absolutely amazes me when you think about this word it. They saw what was going on. This Jesus thing, we don't know what to call it. We're not even going to use the name of Jesus at the end of this verse. But we know it's it. It's got to be stopped, right? They've got no concept of what's going on being the birth of the church. They've got the continued ministry of Christ going on. So they call it it. 17, but lest it spread any further. What spread? The word of Christ. The teachings of the gospel. They do not want this to go on. They do not want to call it. They simply know it must be stopped. We don't want it to be spread around anymore. It must be contained and it must be stopped. They don't have any other name for it other than it. What are the consequences of behavior like this? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. <clears throat> if the truth has ever been suppressed, it's going on right here in this court of the Sanhedrin. They've just been offered salvation in verse 12, and now they're denying the only one that can give it to them. They prefer to retain their titles, their positions in a hopeless religion. And in doing so, they're rejecting the very God they claim to serve. 
The spreading of the good news, the performing of the Great Commission is the Sanhedrin's primary concern. They call it it. It must be stopped. They've got to stop everything and anything that has anything whatsoever to do with the name Jesus Christ. What a daunting task. They do not want the ability to heal associated with his name. And they most certainly do not want any ability to save associated with his name. You see, it was their responsibility to guide the Jewish people to salvation as the leaders of the Jewish nation. And all they could offer them was these works and laws and, and keep the commandment and offer another sacrifice. And wait on the Messiah, right? We're waiting on the Messiah. We won't have to do all this when he comes. And then they denied him. And now they're denying him again. All who do this instead of repenting and believing will suffer with the wrath of God. A wrath of God that will be revealed from heaven, according to Romans chapter 1. And we see things today that fit this description very well. We've got abortion out there that I mentioned from time to time. The murdering of unborn children is okay in the name of human rights. With no consideration whatsoever to the human right of birthright to the one that you're murdering. We can talk about homosexual marriage. And I'm, I'm going to spill the beans here, folks. I can't tell you why God doesn't like homosexual marriage. But what I can tell you is, is that the standard says that it's even unnatural and an abomination. That's all I need to know. You either believe it or you don't. These, these Sanhedrin council members, they're really interested in retaining themselves. Main goal, shut down this entire operation now. We've got to squelch this cause of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 18 to 20, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it, was, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I mentioned this earlier. When this proceeding began, Peter and John were instructed to speak. They were asked a question, right? By what power and in what name have you done this? We demand a response. In verse 10, they say, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. And now they're being told, Don't say anything else. You've said enough. Do not speak at all. Do not teach at all. Concerning the name of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin had to devise some attempt to save face in the light of the evidence that's been presented. We have a miracle that we don't believe in that we can't deny. They've got to do some, they've got to have some semblance of justice being served here. Some legality has to be has to occur here. 
mean, they were the Sanhedrin, right? But more than that, they had to stop this Jesus thing, this it. This idea comes that it's implied in their actions. <clears throat> Did you read anywhere where they forbidden the performing of miracles? Nope. They forbidden the performing of miracles in the name of Christ. They're attempting to not only silence the apostles, but to control them. They want to stop any form of testimony concerning God's work through the name of Jesus Christ. They're repressing the very name that healed and saved the lame man. And by doing so, they're trying to deny the very nation of Israel whom they're supposedly serving access to the Messiah they've been waiting on, the only one who can truly save them. In trying to save face before the crowds, they're denying the people of Israel salvation if they can. Peter and John do not stammer around at this. They're not searching for words. The words are provided by the Holy Spirit and their immediate reply simply asks the Sanhedrin, which court is higher? Your court or God's? You judge, you be the judge. Whose court is higher? Yours or God's? You see, I really believe they would have obeyed the ruling government, the decision that was passed down, if it didn't require them to be disobedient to their Savior. I mean, we're instructed as Christians to be obedient to the governments. God appoints the leaders. We're to respect them. When it comes to a point that they're telling you to do something that violates the manual, that his holy word is violated by their demands, we're to obey God rather than man. Was that biblical? Yeah, actually in many places. You want to hear one? Exodus 1, verse 15. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth... And see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. And if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, but let the boys live. Obey God rather than man, right? I was going to read this whole portion in Daniel 6 about the lion's den. <clears throat> and most of us have read these stories to our kids or Remember them as kids. But basically you got Daniel who's a man who lives a holy life and there are people there that want to set him up for failure. And they talk King Darius into writing this rule that for 30 days if anyone worships any god other than you, King Darius, we want them thrown in the lion's den. We want to show you this much respect. We want you to write this into a manifest and we want you to sign off on it. And if we catch anyone worshiping any god other than you, they're going in the lion's den. King Darius is like, whoa, yeah. Signs it in the law. I'm going to put myself on a pedestal, right? He forgot about Daniel, a man that he actually thought a lot of. Because when you read this, it says, Therefore King Darius signed the written document, that is the injunction. And when Daniel knew that the written document was signed, 
He entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had the windows open toward Jerusalem. <coughs> and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. He's going to obey God rather than man. And we all know the end of the story, right? Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. King Darius has no other choice because he signed it into law. God shuts the lion's mouths. He probably had to declaw them as well, I guess. He withheld them from being able to do any damage whatsoever. King Darius comes back the next morning. Daniel, are you okay in there? And he hears this voice that comes back and says, yeah, God has preserved me. Obey God rather than man. The response from Peter and John is another prime example of what bold preaching looks like. They're boldly appealing to a higher authority that both they and the Sanhedrin are trying to be obedient to. They must answer to that same authority. It's God, right? They're stating that they will not fear punishment from the same court that ruled Christ guilty, sentenced him to execution not so many weeks ago. We do not fear your punishment. We've seen what you will, can, and will do. We still will not fear you. Pressing the Sanhedrin to be their own judge. And Paul kind of expresses what Peter and John are doing here very well. If you look at 1 Corinthians 9.16, it reads, For I proclaim the gospel. If I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. Curses upon me if I do not preach the word. Woe is me if I do not. This is what Peter and John are doing. I mean, this all sounds so strong and so, so impressive in many ways. And I think, man, I hope that if I'm ever in a day of persecution, I can be like they are, right? But if you've got two really Holy Spirit-filled men, what else do you expect? What else should we expect? They're going to preach and teach Jesus Christ and him crucified, and it's just the way it is. Two worldly men would have kept silent. John and Peter didn't do this. Filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Their belief in Christ will not allow them to deny him ever again. They will teach and they will preach Jesus Christ, and they will do it boldly. They will do it plainly. They will do it clearly. And, and they close this ver these verses with, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John had walked with Jesus for over three years. What, what did they see and hear in over three years? We know some portions of it. <clears throat> I'd have to talk about it too. There'd be a lot of people thinking I'm an idiot, I guess. Seeing is believing, right? And I saw David Copperfield make an elephant disappear one time. This isn't an elephant disappearing. This is a lame man that everybody has known for over 40 years who's been healed 
just walking and talking. We're not down here at a prosperity gospel healing service with all these people planted that are going to act like they have a broke leg and they walk out of there. We're talking about a real person, someone in our congregation that has a serious illness that in this day someone would, they would be healed in the name of Jesus Christ through the efforts of, of that person. We, we know the signs have ceased. I mean, we, we recognize that. But that is what happened here in this day. We can't deny that. No threat from the Sanhedrin will keep them from speaking all that they have seen and heard. Verses 21 to 22 read, And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, <clears throat> finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had occurred. Now we're not told to what extent the apostles are further threatened. I'm sure that beatings were threatened, further imprisonment was threatened, but I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination for them to say, if you two keep this up, we're going to hang you on a tree like we did Jesus Christ. You don't want to end up like he did? Why wouldn't they have told him that? It doesn't tell us, but you can only imagine that that, that was part of that story. All levels of punishment would be at the disposal of the Sanhedrin if they decide to let the apostles go. We've heard Josh speak a time or two about God re restraining man from being as sinful as he can be going through Romans. Is this not God restraining them? They would have left there with at least stripes. Come on. they leave there unscathed they decide to let them go threatening was not an act not to enact justice in some way this was about political pragmatism it was about meritorious clout <coughs> they were trying to save face somehow that we are the legal authority see we did do something with them And, and I'm going to slow down here just for one second because we've got a section of the scripture here in verse 21 that's in parentheses. Did y'all notice that? Why are these words in parentheses? Who put them there? Are they a part of scripture or not? So as you do a little bit of study, in different Bibles, different versions of the Bible handle the parentheses a little bit differently here and there. All of them ultimately are providing clarity for something that has just been read or written. Many of these are written in there, they think, by the original writer. In this case, it would have been Luke who put this in here for clarity. Some people think that it may have been a translator who was making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and they put it in there for clarity, maybe at the instruction of someone. <coughs> Nonetheless, I don't want you to get hung up on parentheses. The ESV uses parentheses in some places to show that these words were not in the original manuscripts. So there's some different reasons why that's there, but understand the primary purpose is for clarity, for understanding. 
The verse goes on to add that they were released because of the people. How could they even consider punishing the apostles for a deed that even the most common person among the Jewish people would recognize this work as being that of God? How are they going to punish these people? The citizens are ready to affirm that Peter and John are God's messengers. They're running around everywhere praising God because of the miracle that's happened. It's a perplexing situation that they're dealing with. If only the people were not recognizing this work was done in Jesus' name and power, they could write this off as a work of God. They could just write it off. It's not Jesus. It's God we've been telling you about. There's no Jesus thing here. It's a little too late for that. They've already heard. In this new teaching that they're trying to stop, I'm not sure whether they realize it or not, but this new teaching eliminates their position. The high priest has come. The veil has been torn. There's no reason to sacrifice anything ever again. We don't need priests mediating for us anymore. They didn't in that day if they believed. Were they fearful for their very positions and their longstanding and their positions of clout and power and fame and wealth, recognition by the Roman government? All these things could be in play. I think they possessed a personal fear of the people no longer embracing the teaching of Judaism. No doubt the Sanhedrin walked away from the proceeding feeling like they had been generous. They had shown a level of graciousness to the apostles. They were tolerant toward the apostles, right? We didn't really punish them. We threatened them and we let them go. They surely felt good about themselves, their phony generosity. They missed the invitation to repent and believe. My prayer for us this day is that God will keep our eyes open and not allow us to develop a hardened heart that will always seek for the Savior. Living the Christian life is not an easy walk. It's not always hard, it's not always terrible, but it's not easy. Christ says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The psalmist tells us that there'll be times when we, we lie down in the green pastures. And he tells us there'll be times that we're in the valley of the shadow of death. It's not always going to be easy, folks. Trials and tribulations bring about stronger faith. Don't give up. He's there and he's with you. Peter and John didn't give up. They were leaning on God's sovereign will. Help us to do that. It's my prayer for us. We're no longer of this world now. Our hearts have been regenerated. We don't have that heart of stone anymore. As children of the king, as heirs of Christ, we should walk as he walked. We should strive to be holy as he is holy. We should love as he loved. And we'll not be able to do it perfectly. Not this side of being glorified. Not this side of heaven. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't, shouldn't try. 
I appreciate all you all coming this evening. <clears throat> if anyone here has any questions or concerns with your relationship with Christ, with your salvation, with your edification, with your sanctification, any of those shunned words, please seek out one of the leaders of the church. We'll, we'll stay here as long as necessary. And I thank you very much for your attention. If you will, please stand. <coughs> Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us this church. I thank you for everyone present here. But I thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, to whom we are wed, to whom we love, Lord. I pray, Father, that as the days and the weeks go by, that you will help us to grow closer and closer to you, Lord. Help us to apply this word to our lives that we will see the faith that Peter and John have shown and that we'll be able to take a step closer to being men filled with the Spirit, women filled with the Spirit, able to stand boldly for you and for your cause. Father, we love you and we thank you once again for all you've done for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen.